The House is in recess for the next two weeks, subject to a 72-hour callback in case there's legislation of significance that requires them to return prior to October 19th. The Senate will come back today and stay in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, they came back to work on Monday, expecting to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure package, because that's what Speaker Pelosi had promised 10 moderate Democrats back in August in exchange for their support for the budget resolution that would unlock the reconciliation process. But even as House members gathered, it was becoming clear that the progressives were having none of it. They had conditions too, and their main condition was that the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill had to pass the Senate before they were going to be willing to vote for the bipartisan infrastructure package. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington, the leader of the Progressive Caucus, which boasts a membership of 96, said more than half of her caucus members were committed to voting against the bipartisan infrastructure package if it were to be brought to the floor before the Senate had passed the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. So, instead of voting on that Monday night, Speaker Pelosi announced instead that the vote on the bipartisan infrastructure package would be moved to Thursday. That angered the moderates, but what could they do, really? On Tuesday, the House took up and passed eight bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House passed the rule that would govern floor consideration of S-1301, the vehicle for the debt limit suspension. Then the House took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. Then the House passed S-1301, the vehicle for the debt limit suspension. On Thursday, the House passed the amended version of H.R. 3505, the continuing resolution that had come back from the Senate minus the debt limit suspension provision. Then the House took up and passed a bill under suspension of the rules. And then everybody waited. The House Democrat leadership was still determined to bring the bipartisan infrastructure package to the floor of the House to satisfy the promise that Speaker Pelosi had made to the moderates back in August. And let's be clear, this wasn't just a matter of honor for her. This was a strategic decision. She was worried that if she did not live up to her promise, then when it came time to consider the much larger $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, she might not have those 10 votes from the moderates. And without those 10 votes, she wouldn't be able to deliver a majority on the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. But they still hadn't been able to come to agreement with Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. So there wasn't even a framework of an agreement on the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Without that, she knew it was useless to bring the bipartisan infrastructure package to the floor. So she delayed. In a rarely used procedural move, she decided not to gavel the session into adjournment. Instead, they left the legislative day of Thursday, September 30, open as the members retired for the night. So when they gathered again on what the rest of the world believed was Friday, it was still, technically speaking, Thursday, as far as the House was concerned. Later that day, at 8.10 p.m., the House voted under suspension of the rules to pass H.R. 5434, the Surface Transportation Extension Act. That's a bill to extend by 30 days the authorization for surface transportation programs that had expired the day before on September 30. By passing it, the House avoided the federal government having to furlough about 4,000 Department of Transportation employees. And then they waited some more. Members changed their departure schedules and made plans to stay in town over the weekend. Then, early Saturday morning, the House Democrat leadership announced the House would go into its planned two-week recess after all, and would next come back to work on Monday, October 18, unless something happened that would require them to gather sooner, in which case the Speaker promised them at least 72 hours' notice. 
Last week in the Senate, they too came back to work on Monday. They failed to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to H.R. 5305, the Extending Government Funding and Emergency Assistance Act, also known as the continuing resolution with the debt limit suspension included. The vote was 48 to 50, with Senate Majority Leader Schumer changing his vote at the end of the vote to nay, so he could be on the winning side of the vote and later enter a motion to reconsider. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm the following nominees to the following positions, all at the Department of State. Karen Erica Donfried to be an Assistant Secretary for European Affairs and Eurasian Affairs. Monica P. Medina to be an Assistant Secretary for Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs. Mary Catherine Fee to be an Assistant Secretary for African Affairs. Todd D. Robinson to be an Assistant Secretary for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm Jessica Lewis to be an Assistant Secretary of State of Political and Military Affairs. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Robert T. Anderson to be Solicitor of the Department of the Interior. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Jonathan Eugene Mayer to be General Counsel at the Department of Homeland Security. On Thursday, the Senate took up H.R. 5305, the Extending Government Funding and Emergency Assistance Act. Three amendments were considered, all of which failed. Then the Senate adopted by voice vote the amendment in the nature of a substitute offered by Appropriations Committee Chairman Pat Leahy of Vermont. The amendment removed the debt ceiling provision. The Senate then voted on the bill as amended, and it passed by a vote of 65 to 35. Then the Senate voted by 51 to 50, with Vice President Harris casting the tie-breaking vote to invoke cloture on the nomination of Rohit Chopra to be director of the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Tracy Stone Manning to be director of the Bureau of Land Management. Then the Senate agreed to the motion to proceed to S-1301, the vehicle for a so-called clean debt limit suspension measure. Because it was a message from the House, it could move through the Senate more quickly. It was a simple majority vote to agree to the motion to proceed, but it's still subject to a 60-vote threshold to invoke cloture and end debate before a final vote. It will not meet that threshold. Then, by voice vote, the Senate confirmed the following nominees to the following positions. Melanie Ann Egerin to be Assistant Secretary at the Department of Health and Human Services. Daryl W. Baldwin to be a member of the National Council on the Humanities. Janine Max Fidler to be a member of the National Council on the Humanities. Thomas Andrew Monheim to be Inspector General of the Intelligence Community in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Eric L. Barron to be U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland. Nicholas W. Brown to be U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Washington. Clifford D. Johnson to be U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Indiana. Zachary A. Myers to be U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Indiana, Trini E. Ross to be U.S. Attorney for the Western District of New York, and Vanessa Waldreth to be U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Washington. In addition, Majority Leader Schumer filed cloture on the nominations of Paloma Adams Allen to be Deputy Administrator of the Agency for International Development, and Lauren J. King to be a U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Washington. This week in the Senate, they'll return today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m., at that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on cloture on the nomination of Jonathan Eugene Mayer to be general counsel of the Department of Homeland Security. And based on Leader Schumer's cloture filings, I expect we'll see votes on the nominations of Paloma Adams Allen to be deputy administrator of the Agency for International Development and Lauren J. King to be a U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Washington. Now to immigration. 
On Monday, September 27, that is one week ago, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas announced that the Department of Homeland Security would soon issue a notice of proposed rulemaking to, quote, preserve and fortify, unquote, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, that is the DACA program, which was unlawfully established by President Barack Obama in June of 2012. The new notice of proposed rulemaking comes on the heels of a ruling earlier this year by a federal district judge who struck down the program because it was created unlawfully. Essentially, the new rule is the same as the old rule. The only major difference is that the new rule is being noticed appropriately with a provision for a 60-day public comment period. That public comment period will end on Monday, November 29. DACA is unlawful. This is the program Barack Obama himself said he did not have the constitutional authority to establish right before he chose to establish it anyway. In October 2010, he said, quote, I am not king. I can't do these things just by myself, unquote. In March 2011, he said that, quote, with respect to the notion that I can just suspend deportations through executive order, that's just not the case, unquote. In May 2011, he acknowledged that he could, quote, not just bypass Congress and change the law myself. That's not how a democracy works, unquote. He was right. Only Congress, not the president, has the constitutional and legal authority to make immigration law. And not only did Congress not authorize the president to make such decisions, the Congress specifically rejected proposed legislation that would have done just that. DACA recipients are, by definition, illegal immigrants. DACA, which has benefited more than 800,000 illegal immigrants, is a massive amnesty program. DACA is a direct violation of U.S. immigration law, which requires that people in this country illegally be apprehended and repatriated into their own country. Again, the 60-day comment period ends on Monday, November 29. Now more on the continuing resolution slash debt limit. So here's where we are. The continuing resolution that funds the government at current funding levels until December 3 passed. So the House and Senate bought themselves another two months of negotiating time to figure out with Republicans just how much money the government is going to expend on its regular programming in the next fiscal year. But the provision suspending the debt limit was removed from the bill in order to get the required Republican votes in the Senate. And Treasury Secretary Yellen sent a letter to congressional leaders last Tuesday in which she declared that she would lose her ability to pay the government's bills if the debt limit were not raised or suspended by October 18th. So they've got two weeks left to figure that out. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is absolutely determined that there should be no Republican fingerprints on this debt limit extension. He announced that to the world back in July, and he's held firm on that front ever since. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer apparently did not believe McConnell, so he brought to the floor a continuing resolution that contained a provision suspending the debt limit. And all the Republicans voted against cloture on the motion to proceed to that bill. McConnell explained again that no Republican would consent to moving a debt limit extension. Still, Schumer did not believe him. So on Tuesday, Schumer tried to bring up a debt limit extension measure by unanimous consent. He reasoned that he did not need Republican votes to actually pass the measure if he could just get it on the floor. If the Republicans would all just leave the floor and not object to his motion to put it on the floor, then the Democrats would do all the heavy lifting and pass it without Republican votes. 
But even that process would have required Republican consent. And in fact, it would have required consent from all 50 Republicans, each and every one of them. So McConnell shot shot that down too. And once again, explained to the Democrats and the world that they could raise the debt limit on their own without any Republican support by using the reconciliation process. Quote, bipartisanship isn't a light switch that Democrats can switch on when they need to borrow money and flip off when they want to spend money, he said on the Senate floor. If Democrats want to use fast track procedures to ram through trillions more in inflationary socialism, they'll have to use the same tools to handle the debt limit. And they've known this for more than two months. There is no constant tradition that says one party governments get bipartisan help with the debt limit. Just between 2003 and 2010, there were five occasions when the party in power had to get a debt limit hike through the Senate themselves. Then Senators Biden and Schumer voted no on raising the debt limit under President Bush 43 and made the unified Republican government do it ourselves. So it's time for our Democratic colleagues to stop dragging their heels and get moving. They've had more than two months to accept it, end quote. Stay tuned. Now to infrastructure and budget reconciliation. Here's where we are. We're stuck in exactly the same place we've been for the last several weeks, except that now things have become just a little bit clearer, thanks to several key revelations last week. The first of those revelations was that, yes, Speaker Pelosi, the Progressive Caucus is firing with live ammunition. When Congresswoman Jayapal says her members will vote to kill the bipartisan infrastructure package if they don't get what they want on the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill first, she means it. And she apparently proved to Speaker Pelosi's satisfaction that she could deliver because Speaker Pelosi pulled the bipartisan infrastructure package not once but twice to avoid a humiliating defeat on that bill. The second of those revelations was that Speaker Pelosi apparently does not read the news on a regular basis or have anyone on her staff read the news and then tell her about it either. On Thursday morning at her weekly press conference, she explained that, quote, and in terms of timing and the rest, I wish we had more time. I will say that in terms of we only found out a week and a half ago, only over 95% of my caucus supports the 3.5. As of a week and a half ago, it was all systems go, 3.5. The president, the leader in the Senate. So we're having to compress a lot of our discussion here, end quote. She's saying that she never realized that Senators Manchin and Cinema had declared very loudly back in August that they would not support a $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Frankly, that's dereliction of duty on her part. For her to not know that $3.5 trillion would not pass the Senate is just unconscionable for a leader in her position. The third of those revelations was a bit of a stunner, even in Washington, D.C., a town that's long been known for its intrigue. For months, the entire world has been asking, just what does Joe Manchin want? As I just mentioned, we've known since August what he does not want. He has said repeatedly that he will simply not support three and a half trillion dollars in spending. But we have not been told what he does want. Well, it turns out that since July, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has known exactly what Senator Manchin wants because he had a one page memo from Manchin that both of them signed. In that one-page memo, Manchin said he would be willing to support a reconciliation bill that spends no more than $1.5 trillion. That's less than half the top-line number Democrats have been working with for the last several months. Further, that memo says Manchin wants to see the corporate tax rate rise to 25%, 
not the 26.5% included in the Ways and Means Committee's section of the reconciliation bill. And Manchin wants to see capital gains taxes rise to 28%. The fourth of these revelations is that President Biden had better step up his game if he wants to avoid comparisons to the Carter presidency. He traveled to Capitol Hill Friday afternoon to meet with the House Democratic Caucus. That's the kind of thing that happens when the speaker needs the president to deliver the closing argument, to pull in any still recalcitrant fence sitters, to get those last few votes needed to get the vote across the finish line. But that's not what he did. He actually left House Democrats with the impression that he didn't care when they passed their bills, that there was no rush on passing the bipartisan infrastructure package, that there was plenty of time to work out the reconciliation bill to everyone's satisfaction. The moderates, who had been promised to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure package and then had it rescheduled and delayed not once but twice before having that vote totally scrapped, were furious. And the progressives were not better off because they still didn't know what Biden wants. He seems content to let the legislators work it out. So Democrats have now acknowledged that they will not be passing a bill that costs three and a half trillion dollars. Manchin has said clearly he will support no more than one and a half trillion. Cinema hasn't revealed what her top line number is. The White House seems to think Manchin's one and a half trillion really means one point nine trillion or maybe even two point three trillion dollars because they're now talking about putting together a deal that spends 1.9 to $2.3 trillion. If you start with the draft reconciliation bill they have now, there are three ways you can cut it down to size. First, you could scrap programs entirely, just leave them on the cutting room floor, shrink the scope of the bill massively, expand Medicare to include vision, hearing, and dental, out saves $350 billion. Extend the enhanced child tax credit for 10 years, gone. Saves 1.6 trillion right there. Expand Obamacare subsidies, remove them. Saves $163 billion. Create and fund paid family leave and medical leave, done. Saves $225 billion. You get the picture. Second, you could continue to create all the new programs you want, but don't fund them for more than a few years. Rather than fund programs for 10 years, you fund them for two. Take a $1.6 trillion spend, like extending the enhanced child tax credit for a decade, and only fund it for two years. That would save about $1.3 trillion right there. Do that across the board, and you create an entire new set of programs and bureaucracies and constituencies and special interests to fight for them in future years when their funding has expired, but their new constituencies have not. Third, you could means test the whole shebang limit the beneficiaries of all these new programs on the basis of income, so only the least well-off among us benefit from this new taxpayer-funded largesse. Obviously, you can mix and match here. Create all the new programs you want, fund some of them for a decade, some of them for two years, and means test some of them. Do what it takes to get your numbers where they need to be. This is why we pointed out several weeks ago that what's really dangerous in this scheme is the number of new programs, not the cost associated with them. There are trade-offs involved in all these decisions. For instance, if Democrats decide they want to create the entire new raft of programs and compensate for the breadth of that scheme by not going deep and only funding each of these new programs for a few years, they run the risk of having none of these new programs have a chance to really establish themselves in the public's mind as being part of their life. And they run the risk of not doing any of these new programs well. And that would mean that when the funding expires and it's time to fight for new funding, the programs might not have the political support necessary to survive. 
On the other hand, if they decide to simply drop some of the programs entirely, well, that's just a program that'll have to wait a long time for the next time the Democrats control the White House, the Senate, and the House simultaneously. It is relatively rare. Since World War II, Democrats have had unified control of the executive and legislative branches from 1949 to 1953, 1961 to 1969, 1977 to 1981, 1993 to 95, and 2009 to 2011, and now. Check out those last two again. Since Ronald Reagan was president, Democrats have had unified control of Washington for precisely four years. The first two years of Bill Clinton's presidency and the first two years of Barack Obama's presidency. So the opportunity to create all these new programs comes around only once in a blue moon, and they're gonna find it hard to give up on some of these things that have been on their wish lists for decades. Let's talk about just one example in the healthcare field. Democrats on Capitol Hill want to do three things on the healthcare front. Bernie Sanders wants to expand Medicare to include dental, vision, and hearing coverage. Speaker Pelosi wants to expand Obamacare subsidies. And other liberals want to expand Medicaid benefits under Obamacare into about a dozen red states whose governors and legislatures never took the expanded Medicaid funding option in Obamacare. There's no way you can do all three of those things in a reconciliation bill that's limited to one and a half trillion dollars. At least one of those priorities, and probably two, are going to end up on the cutting room floor. And the remaining one, the winner, is likely to have its funding shortened. How that one argument ends is anybody's guess. And that's just one example of what now faces Democrats as they try to figure out how to get from where we are to where they want to be. Oh, and they have less than a month to do it. And the House is scheduled to be out of town for the first two weeks of that time frame. Speaker Pelosi announced after she sent the House home for two weeks that she anticipates a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure package by the end of October. And that's our Washington Report for this 